You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of Profiles brought to you by the christianhumanist.org. I'm Christina Bieber-Lake, and while some of you may have heard me on the Christian Feminist or the Core Curriculum podcast or on Profiles with Michael, I've never been the interviewer, so this is kind of fun and exciting for me. It's especially fun and exciting because with me today is Jessica Hooten-Wilson, who is really making a name for herself as a Flannery O'Connor scholar. In fact, she's the Louise Cowan Scholar-in-Residence at the University of Dallas for this upcoming academic year and has written a number of books and articles about O'Connor, Walker Percy, Dostoevsky, and other writers. And I have to say, I always love a great book title, and Jessica, you nailed it with one of your books, Giving the Devil His Due. I just love that title. (laughs) So how are you doing today, Jessica? I'm doing great. Yeah, I think that 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 title pretty much made the book. I think it made it interesting people who aren't even interested in (laughs) (laughs) O'Connor. Yes, that's true. Uh, And and that's really the way to do it. Um, Jill Baumgartner also did that with, you know, Flannery O'Connor, a proper scaring. I've always been very jealous of that, of that title. So, oh, well, (laughs) I'll just have to go with my own boring (laughs) titles. Um, But the context of our discussion today is not one of uh, Jessica's many books, uh, but the article that Paul Ely has recently published in The New Yorker entitled, How Racist Was Flannery O'Connor? And then Jessica's response to the article, which she published in First Things. Now, the article in The New Yorker has gotten a lot of attention, and of course it addresses a crucial issue for Christian literary scholars and indeed all readers of Flannery O'Connor, So we reached out to Jessica, and she kindly agreed to talk with us. So thank you for that. Absolutely. This is crucial. (laughs) Yes, it is crucial. Mm -hmm. So an important issue that I think we'd like to address is how Ely reads Angela O'Donnell's book called Radical Ambivalence, Race and Flannery O'Connor, which was published this June. And of course, we'll be talking about all things related to race and O'Connor. So... Jessica, you and I are both Flannery O'Connor scholars. We've read a ton of scholarship on her work. And I want to be as charitable as possible to Ely because I think his book, The Life You Save May Be Your Own, which is on O'Connor, Percy, Merton, and Day, as you know, is a good book, right? It's an excellent introduction mm-hmm. to yes. important Catholic writers. But as you did, I had a lot of issues with Ely's piece in The New Yorker, so I was really glad to see your write-up of a response in First Things. So let's start with Ely, and let's start on the charitable Mm -hmm. side first. What do you think he got right in uh, this particular article? Wow. (laughs) I'm I'm actually glad that you started with charity, but I don't know that I was prepared for charity. Oh, sorry. I've been angry for so many weeks. Yeah. (laughs) You're right. Back it up. Think about what he did right. You know, I don't think he was wanting to cancel her. In some ways, he might have been trying to get ahead of some cancel culture and say, okay, let's admit her faults. Let's get it out there. We're on her side. If we admit her faults, hopefully we can save her from being canceled and written out of Mm -hmm. people's reading lists. Um, And so I think in in that sense, he was trying to, to, to get ahead and to save her. I mean, I think he does love Flannery and he has appreciated her work for years. And when he wrote his book, he did, did not have access to being able to cite a lot of the letters that Angela cites. And so mm-hmm. he, he wasn't able to do that. Um, and so now he's getting a chance to kind of add an addendum to his book and maybe 
correct anything that he wishes he would have written differently. Mm -hmm. That's very well said. And I agree. I think it is a kind of a preemptive mood move in some ways to Mm -hmm. try to get ahead of the criticism that is no doubt going to come down the pipeline and, uh, and has already come down the pipeline, which is something that we'll be talking about. Um, But I think where he goes most wrong in my view is his handling of the scholarship of O'Connor on O'Connor, right? Yes. Um, He acts, I think, as if he's the only one who will admit that O'Connor was a racist and unless and until we all excoriate her for her sins, we aren't going to be able to engage her work seriously enough. And so I wanted to just get your feedback on, and maybe you know how to pronounce her name, Amy Alsnauer. I love Amy. Yeah. (laughs) I loved her piece in, um, gosh, what was the the place? Bitter Southerner. Bitter Southerner, which is also funny. (laughs) But I just wanted to read you this, and I want to hear your response, and we'll get started that way. Ely worries that a neat line has been drawn between O'Connor's fiction and her other writing where race is involved. He worries that critics, and we have to assume he is targeting O'Donnell or possibly Ralph Wood since he doesn't cite any others by name, have at once used her letters and essays in an effort to move her from the margins to the center, but have chalked up her racist remarks as literary ephemera. Ely then declares, as if he's the only one who has thought of it, that the letters belong to the author's body of work they help show us who she was. Lest this comment hit readers with the force of revelation, and let's be clear that O'Donnell's entire book is devoted to exactly that, engaging both her stories and her correspondence. And then she goes on to quote from O'Donnell's book. Now, you've read O'Donnell's book, right? And you're reviewing it in a forthcoming issue. So what do you think about how Ely reads O'Donnell and other scholars who have dealt with this issue? Yeah, well, I think you're bringing up several good points. One of the things that Amy also said in her article was, um, we also have to presume he's ignoring all black and women writers who yes. work on this very issue in O'Connor because, and she quotes a few of them. And actually, I, I had quoted the same, the same uh, headliners really on O'Connor scholarship when it comes to you know Toni Morrison wrote on O'Connor, mm-hmm. um, Hilton Owls writes on O'Connor, Alice Walker writes on O'Connor, and they're really addressing the race question directly. Yeah, directly. And so this wasn't something that people were ignored. So you have to actually silence prominent black voices to Mm -hmm. say that no one's looked at this. Mm -hmm. And and so that's really problematic, not to mention silence Angela herself, who has just committed the last several years. This was her dissertation. Mm -hmm. She was engaged in archival research and she was looking, you know, she had scholars looking over her shoulders and watching what she was doing and dialoguing with her about this work. So she was really investigating. This wasn't just one person's perspective on Mm O'Connor. She was trying to do right uh, covering the issue from multiple sides. And it just so happened that I had finished my review of her book for first things when Ely's piece came out. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so I, you know, but things come to print much slower, slower than they yeah. come. Right. And so I had already turned that in when this piece came out online and I thought, what in the world, um, on a negative perspective and, and Ely and I've had good conversations. And mm-hmm. so I, I can't imagine his motives. I even tried to engage him in email. Like, what are your motives? Like, I'm not trying to disparage him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was so perplexed because this seemed very irresponsible for all the people who are not scholars mm-hmm. and who are going to take his perspective mm-hmm. and say, this is how we have to read O'Connor because it's in the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it has to be right. 
Um, whereas, you know, O'Donnell never has that kind of pretense or of, of position or posturing, right? Mm-hmm. Even her title, radical ambivalence, Bivalence, yeah. acknowledges there's a web of contradictions when you start looking at O'Connor's letters and, mm-hmm. and you're, you know, and you're talking about a person who lived 39 years. So you can find things from when she was younger and you can't say that that encompasses all of her personality all the way up until the end where she's going back and forth. And any of us who acknowledge that human beings are under process mm-hmm. have to acknowledge that you can't just label and caricature someone and throw them one direction or another. That's right. That's right. And it, it is useful to remember that although she is a contemporary, as um, Ely points out of Angela, Maya Angelou, Le Guin, Tom Wolfe, etc., mm-hmm. she died before the yeah. civil rights movement Yes. you know was really underway and so it is it's very one wonders how she would have responded and corrected herself and you know taken back some of the things that she said not that you can take it back but you know what I mean right she right. would have evolved well, and you look at you know I mean that's such a great point looking at it historically and I know we can't just excuse her historically but if you look at the way her fiction changes between 1960 and 64 mm-hmm even within that four years where, you know, King is visiting Albany and things are happening very close to her. Um, she's in the middle of this really, as it gets started and she's changing her writing. I mean, mm-hmm. she had moved away from it for so long and is now really embroiled in it in her last collection. I mean, everything rises must converge. A lot of those stories are trying to tackle the topical that she finds frustrating <laughs> or mm-hmm. problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. And so I, I just was so troubled by Ely's reading of O'Donnell in particular, because to me, for, even from what he quoted, I thought was actually quite responsible scholarship uh, that, was, that was very careful to, to point out that, yes, there's no denying that Flannery O'Connor was racist, right? There, I mean, uh, in the way that Southerners were racist um, at, the, at the time. And that's, again, yeah. not to excuse her but that she also wrote right. against racism in her stories, right? Like both of these things are going on in O'Donnell's analysis as far as I can see it. Well, and, and you know, I don't know if you've ever seen Avenue Q, but have you ever heard that song, Everyone's a Little Bit Racist Sometimes? <laughs> yeah, um, I've heard I of just, it, yes. I just, I mean, it's for me, every time people call someone else a racist, it's like, you know, it really is just not a good noun. It's a great yeah. verb to say that we participate in racism or we yeah. fight racism within ourselves. Like there's there's actions that you that you can participate in and where things are increasing blindness or they're decreasing mm. it and lifting veil. Okay, Jessica, you've just cut out. I can't hear you. Okay. You just got out. So if you mind, Sorry. can you repeat that sentence? Sure. Or pick up whatever yeah. you can. No, it's fine. I, I think the label racist just isn't helpful. Um, and I think that this is one of the things David Griffith, he wrote a piece afterwards on in response to what I was writing and Amy was writing and Evie was writing. And we're all having this conversation online. But he said, you know, racist or anti-racist is probably not helpful. And I thought, mm-hmm. you're right. I don't need to fight on the same terms as Ely's headline. Because it's just not a great category. She was sometimes participating in a racist system. Mm-hmm. And she was she was guilty and complicit. Um, and so are a lot of us. And then the point is, what was she doing with that? Was she celebrating it? <laughs> was right. she continuing it? Perpetuating it? No, she wasn't. She was trying to uproot it and find 
yes. within herself. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And this sentence of Elyism, I'll just read it really quickly here, uh, referring again to O'Donnell and her argument. It suggests that white racism in Georgia was all-encompassing and brooked no dissent, even though, as O'Donnell points out, Georgia was then changing more dramatically than at any point before or since. Patronizingly, it proposes that O'Connor, a genius who prized detachment, lacked the free will to think for herself. I think that's a really unfair uh, characterization of that argument. You know, um, it takes right. more than a genius to get beyond your culture's uh, leanings, right? Your yes. the, the, yes. the surroundings that you live in. And, and so it becomes really troubling to do, as you say, sort of label you either are or you aren't this, right? You either are a racist or you aren't right. a racist. Uh, or well, how racist things, are you? I mean, you just mentioned. Right, right. I mean, that's really the incendiary title that kind of sparks mm-hmm. the whole debate. Um, but one of the things I think O'Donnell does well is, is she's trying to talk about what O'Connor had absorbed from her culture and kind of the manners that she was falling into or that she felt like she couldn't brook. Um, but at the same time, you look at O'Connor's fiction and she has this prophetic imagination in which she's actually offering an alternative to the consciousness of her culture, mm-hmm. right? She is stepping outside of it. I mean, if you, I, I uh, love Walter Brueggemann's argument about prophetic imagination. Where it's oh, like, I love that too. Yeah, the, the, uh, I think it's fantastic when you understand O'Connor, but I've always understood it that she was objecting to the royal consciousness and she was recognizing the materialism and consumerism that was really impinging upon faithful practices but I don't think O'Connor ever saw that imperialist consciousness as white. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where she was missing it. She was missing part of that story. She wasn't able to process race theologically. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's one of the things that really inhibited her from being more active um, because she saw it as more of a temporal problem and not an eternal one. Mm-hmm. The yeah, way no, we I think we're handling things. I think that's very well said, um, and it is it is tricky though, isn't it? Because I I do want to read a couple of the letters uh, from the article that he brings out. So, so because one of the things I think is is good about Elise's piece is that he does remind us that for a time, O'Connor scholars were really trying to hide this uh, problematic stuff. I wouldn't say that they were. Um, always apologizing for it but there was a protective uh kind of layer around um especially i think well could you say the estate is is it better to say maybe the estate yeah. or those who are closest to o'connor were just very fearful of her being misunderstood correct yes um that is that's more precisely put particularly like sally fitzgerald who i met when yes. i was at emory she could be quite vicious, uh, protective, um, and particularly disliked Ralph Wood because he pointed out uh, these passages were, in fact, racist. You know, um, the things that uh, sh- that she wrote about James Baldwin, for instance, and mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, Sally Fitzgerald just couldn't deal with that, and I'd seen yeah. her shut down conversation before. But um, here, here's some. Just I just want to read. Um, her own remarks here really quickly and let you respond to that. She says, you know, I'm an integrationist by principle and a segregationist by taste anyway. I don't like Negroes. They all give me a pain and the more of them I see, the less and less I like them, particularly the new kind, end quote. And this letter came before the infamous and 
really truly awful exchange with Marriott Lee about James mm-hmm. Baldwin, right? She says, quote, about the Negroes, the kind I don't like is the philosoph- philosophizing, prophesying, pontificating kind, the James Baldwin kind. Very ignorant, but never silent. Baldwin can tell us what it feels like to be a Negro in Harlem, but he tries to tell us everything else, too. M.L. King, I don't think, is the age's great saint, but he's at least doing what he can do and has to do. Don't know anything about Ossie Davis except that you like him, but you probably like them all. My question (laughs) is, usually would this person be endurable if white? Mm -hmm. If Baldwin were white, nobody would stand him in a minute, end quote. So what do you do with that? Yeah, that's a lot of quotes. Um, part yeah. of what the problem is for, for O'Connor. So if we talk, she said, you know, is this person endurable with white? Um, she does not like philosophical people who right. are pretentious. And so she's probably mischaracterizing Baldwin. Um, but she is categorizing him in the same way she would have ca- categorized Marriott. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, she did not like people who presume to know all the answers mm-hmm. and who, and she writes stories about these kind of radical false intellectuals who yes. are unable to love the person next to them, um, but they posture that they love everyone. Yeah. Yes. And, and you know, I agree a hundred percent with that because a lot of my yeah. book was dealing with, with that, you know, this kind of uh, elite kind of liberal thinking, uh, posturing uh, intellectuals that she really disliked. Uh, yeah. Do do that general generalizing that you're talking about. Um, it's just too bad that James Baldwin was the target because, in my view, he is not right. that. Um, and so it just makes right. me very sad. Yeah, and I think she's also. I mean, she really is becoming, in that sense, prey to a lot of things from her culture. I mean, mm. I can't help but see that to be the case. I mean, she has a new TV in her house where you know the media is being controlled and what it shows her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. So her last couple of years, she's watching things on screen and getting it filtered. And the screen, I mean, the screen is much more persuasive than a book that allows you to think outside the box and dialogue with it. And so she's receiving a certain amount of media that is constant that's telling her who Baldwin is. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) um, I think I think that's part of the problem. Um, And I don't think she even understands her own susceptibility to that because Mm -hmm. she wouldn't have been susceptible to fiction in the same way. Mm -hmm. And this, again, is where I feel like he, uh, Ely is criticizing O'Donnell so unfairly because who really is fully conscious of the way Mm -hmm. that their own culture is impacting them? You know, that the way that David Foster Wallace would put it, right? It's the water that we swim in. The fish is in the water and this is water. It's all around us. And how do you... It takes, I think, an extraordinary person to be, you know, totally above that. Right. Um, Well, even the amazing scholarship that's been done in the last 10 years, um, you know, things like Willie James Jennings' books, The Christian Imagination, shows how deep-rooted this is or, you know, how much the poison has infiltrated everything. Yeah. um, So that we can't even see certain things clearly. O'Connor had no no knowledge of that, right? Yeah. And so she's judging based on what? She's based on television. She's based on her family and her the local Milledgeville community. And then also the only black people that she knows regularly are actually problems in the system. They are not being respected. They're not being paid well. Um, they are living by alcohol problem because of a lot of suffering that's been passed down. Mm-hmm. right in their family and they're and that's who she's around and mm-hmm. 
they have not received the opportunities for education. They have not received the opportunities to become who they were meant to be. And, and so she is, she's really kind of filtering through her personal experience. Um, even though she knows this is not necessarily the case. I mean, you look at her fiction, like enduring chill Mm -hmm. where she writes these characters and they're kind of these, these parodies because she realizes her own limitations in being able to understand, um, the African-Americans around her. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting example because in The Enduring Chill, which is a story I teach a lot because I think it's so good, it's the Mm -hmm. writer, Asbury, who has pretensions of understanding the, quote, Negro problem, right? Yes. So so she is taking him down for trying to understand something he can't understand. And that's, in fact, what she said about writing African-Americans herself. She said, I can't understand this and so i'm not Mm -hmm. going to try to make this up right 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 which i i always viewed as pretty respectful it is and this is where the question you know i think we're in a different time and place where you Mm -hmm. have to so alice walker writes about Mm -hmm. um this decision and says i really respect that o'connor didn't try to imprison the Mm -hmm. negro characters into a mold that mm-hmm. they wouldn't have fit in, mm-hmm. right? And that she gave them the dignity they deserve to be free characters outside of her authorial control. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Um, at the same, same time, you know, you kind of look back at Jane Austen versus Dorothy Sayers in my yeah. mind. Jane Austen wouldn't write about two male characters talking because she's never been a man alone with a man in a room. Mm. Whereas Dorothy Sayers, you know, people would say, how do you write men so well? Uh-huh. And she's like, well, I, I start with what human beings would do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then thus... I can write a man as well as I can write a woman. And I think we're at the place now where we recognize if you're going to write an African-American character, you, you start with the premise that they're human. Mm-hmm. And O'Connor just didn't have, I don't think she had that. I think she was mm-hmm. more of the Jane Austen fallacy mm-hmm. where she felt like she would have to be black to write black characters well, rather than starting with certain assumptions about their humanity. That's really interesting. Uh, you know, but what's also interesting about, about that comment to me is that my students today, this is like one of their big issues. They'll, they'll um, start attacking a writer and say, he doesn't have a right to write about that because he doesn't know that. Per- <laughs> I don't know if you've run into this with your students, but right. they were, I gave them a graded class discussion um, on Raymond Carver. So I'm just sitting in the back listening to them talk. And they spent almost the whole hour talking about whether he has the right to write women characters. Wow. Yeah, you know. So you mentioned it as a kind of a fallacy, but it's a fallacy that's also got particular legs in our culture currently um, because right. of the, uh, you know, the issues of authenticity and who has the right to tell a story, right? Um, yeah, and I think it's, it's also whether you're caricaturing or stereotyping yes, right. becomes the problem. Right, right. Um, and of course, they're really worried about that. But to them, the reasoning has extended almost to like, you can't even do it. Um, because yeah. you will be, you know, necessarily stereotyping or caricaturing. Um, which, which is also really difficult to me because, it, you know, I love writing saint stories and I'm not a saint. Mm. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, <laughs> right. How dare I enter the mind of a faithful person when I'm such a sinner? But I think there's also part of creative license to yeah. be able to enter into minds that are not yours. As long as your aim is higher, I think, rather than lower, rather mm-hmm. than the reducing effect. Right. Trying mm-hmm. to, like O'Connor would say, uh, dig down deep to where God is. Mm. Right. What is what's the truth of the thing? 
um, in front of us. Mm, yes. So let's talk a little bit about Ely's reading of O'Connor. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, that, that to me, you were troubled by O'Donnell and I was yeah. troubled for O'Donnell's sake yes. with his caricature of her book. But yeah. his reading, I thought, have, have you forgot? Have you read the story? Like, yeah. did you do you forget what Revelation is about? Yeah, it, it felt that way to me too, um, particularly because he is just sort of adamantly saying or arguing that that Flannery O'Connor's vision that she gives to. By the way, this is not her vision; it's the vision she gives to Ruby Turpin at the yes. end of Revelation is segregationist. Okay, first of all. It's Turpin's vision that is already problematic because it's from her point of view, right? It's free and direct discourse. Mm-hmm. She's talking mm-hmm. about the N-word. She's talking right. about how she's the better singer. She and Claude yes. sing better as they're <laughs> yep. going up into heaven. Yep. So if, if it's segregationist, it's her vision, um, not Flannery right. O'Connor's vision, that segregationist. Um, right. So I just thought that was a pretty bad kind of category error uh, to put it that way. Right. I, I think not to mention the fact that it's a biblical, it's a biblical yes. vision. So you can see where Turpin interprets the vision poorly. Mm-hmm. So she's seeing things a certain way, but Correct. what's really being shown to her, the reader can kind of filter that and see that there are black people in white robes walking before her, dancing as though before the Lord. Like mm-hmm. you could rewrite it with more holy vision. Mm-hmm. And what's in front of her is not segregationist. What's mm-hmm. in front of her is a biblical, like Revelations 1-7, as people are entering heaven and yeah. walking through the fire of purgatory. <laughs> yeah. And the, paradise. And, and the reason why they're segregated, if at all, I went back and read that and it did not, it just mentioned that there were these different groups. It didn't say what order they're in. But if they are segregated, it's because the last shall be first, as you point out in your article. Yes. <laughs> and the African-Americans have been put last and now they are first. Yes, um, absolutely. She's, I mean, O'Connor's always turning things over, right? She yeah. always talks about we're, we're all walking around upside down. Mm-hmm. We got to be flipped by Jesus to see things right side up. And so, yeah, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. It's, to me, it's pretty standard reading of, of Revelation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now, not to mention she steps down. She does what? I love that part too. I missed that she last steps part. down. Okay. The fact that Ruby Turpin steps down at the end, the descent moment, right? So yeah. O'Connor's characters, and you talked about this in the incarnational art, the movements matter. Mm-hmm. And here you have the descending downwards that she mm-hmm. is actually just almost beginning. Um, she has to be lowered. She has to be taken off her pedestal, off, mm-hmm. off of her high place, mm-hmm. up on that hill and up, up on that pig pen yes. um, and lowered down. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you quote in your uh, response, my favorite part of Revelation, which is when she shouts out, who do you think you are? And it echoes back in her face. Yes. That is just so brilliant. I just love, love, love that. Yes. Yeah. Now, I want and to you be... imagine O'Connor doing that to herself, right? Who do you yes. think you are? Yeah, right. And you make that point in your article. But I also want to be really clear to our listeners and, um, you know, anybody, anybody who's listening, that um, we are not excusing... Uh, at this point, O'Connor's racist remarks or, you know, I want to make it very clear. And I know you feel the same way. So the Mm -hmm. question that we're kind of left with is how do we handle the sins, especially racism of our favorite writers? You know, I mean, to me, this is the larger issue that Ely does not address. Um, um, And 
fatefully is just sort of more on board with the kind of current, let's just unmask all these things. And as you put, you know, can't potentially cancel uh, the people mm-hmm. who don't fit. But what do we do? How do we right. handle the sins of our favorite writers, particularly Christian writers, right, who are really trying right. to show uh, charity and love for all people. And I think O'Connor definitely does that. The artificial N-word does that. Everything that rises, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, a a real love for humanity, all humanity, I think, right. in her story. So what do we do? Well, I think that's where we we do have to focus on the fiction more than we have to focus on the biography because the people themselves, writers are sinners. We were so, sinners. Yep. <laughs> so if we look too much at all of their lives, I mean, I remember being in a Baylor graduate seminar with a bunch of theologians and I'd read Dostoevsky numerous times. And I was so excited to be in there. And then the session started and someone raised their hands as though, you know, revealing something and said, you know, Dostoevsky was married twice and he was a gambler and he was an anti-Semite. And I was like, this is how we're beginning the conversation? Yeah. Really? Really? This is how we're beginning the conversation? It was so disappointing to me because I thought, well, of course he's a sinner, but can we look at the stories? Because they're amazing and they're Mm -hmm. lifting us beyond our human foibles towards really a prophetic vision, something Mm -hmm. that we're aspiring towards. Um, to quote Brueggemann again, sorry, I've been in his work a lot lately, I love but it. to quote Brueggemann, you know, we need not just the critical, uh, work of looking at the present and seeing what's wrong. We need the energizing vision of the future. We need to imagine the future and that's where art comes in. Mm-hmm. So I, I think a lot of our best writers, maybe were not as critical of the present as they should have been. They weren't actively engaged. They weren't activists, mm-hmm. a lot of our fiction writers, but they were active through their fiction to give us that energy to move something beyond where we currently were, mm-hmm. right? So we have to understand what what their point is. Um, where do they fit in this move for us to, to really engage with a better future? And it has to be through their art. I would say the same thing with writers like C.S. Lewis, who, you know, is misogynist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but as a woman, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stop reading his art just because his essays on women are really problematic. Right, or Tolkien's kind of the eternal feminine and the things that come in there <laughs> have always just really bugged me. Right? Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> or Augustine. Oh my goodness. Yeah, or Augustine. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, all women are this lure away from the good things in life. So mm-hmm. I think I do think you have to look more at the writing, um, especially the visions of the future, rather than the foibles of the artist. I think mm-hmm. we have to have more grace with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also been thinking a lot from a canon perspective, because I do a lot of great books teaching. Mm-hmm. And I love what Alice Walker says, that she refused to have a segregated literature in which we cancel Flannery. Mm-hmm. And just replace her with Jean Toomer. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she was going to read both, you know, Jean Toomer and Faulkner mm-hmm. and Zora Neale Hurston and Flannery. And I think that has to be part of the picture, too. You know, if you teach a, a course in which every text you're reading is a white male and they're using the N word and it's just beating over the head with yeah. these same perspectives, um, that's not really getting us anywhere either you Mm -hmm. have to have a conversation which means multiple voices need to be involved um, Mm -hmm. to have the best possible Mm -hmm. and I've always thought that Alice Walker's um, piece was so good right so charitable um, but still holding Flannery O'Connor to count right 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, it, she expresses rage and anger. Yeah. Um, and and understandably so. And then says, "But you know what? I it would be a loss to let the anger rule at the end." Which yeah. I I always think is the bravery and courage of a lot of our best black writers is to show the rage, exhibit the rage, and then have the courage to say, I'm going to instead choose this. I'm going to choose mercy um, with my justice. And it's just, I I think that's so brave in the way that Walker does it. And Morrison does the same thing. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. Very similar. Their their approaches to Flannery O'Connor's work, which um, has been important to both of those writers. Uh, yes. In their own formation as writers of, of fiction. So that's that's really interesting and charitable um, of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we still haven't figured out, you know, how we're supposed to handle. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've we've made some progress, though, I think, on the question. But it is it is a tricky one. And uh, here's an, another example. We've been talking about the way that women are depicted. I have an ongoing conversation with Michael Farmer, who is um, the one who's behind this conversation because he's an Updike uh, scholar and okay. writer about Updike. And I have a real problem with the, with the way that Updike not only sees women, but encourages the reader to see mm. women. And to me, I draw a line between that right. and the way that Flannery O'Connor treats rich. Like, to me, there are That's an different point. things going on there. And again, it's right. not to excuse the places where Flannery O'Connor is fuzzy on race or problematic. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, in um, The Artificial N-Word, which is a story I referred to earlier, um, right. it's problematic what the, the little, the statue, what the, what HUD, Nelson Head and Mr. Head are getting mm-hmm. from the statue, right? It's problematic. Um, in fact, just as, as kind of a side story, um, I was invited to go to the American Literature Conference by Bob, Bob Donahue, who I'm sure you know as well, mm-hmm. and talk about just the last eight paragraphs of that story, <laughs> because there's so much controversy, right, about what, right. what they mean. And um, he had originally had Toni Morrison to do it, and then she backed out, and so I got invited. So I got to be Toni Morrison's replacement. <laughs> Oh, it's my funny. my biggest claim to fame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I can't remember when so Morrison talks about that particular story and I can't remember exactly which piece. Is it the Origin of Others or her 2004 Michigan lecture? Yeah. She talks about it in one of those and she she concludes differently than I do and so it shows you how problematic it is. Um she reads it and says, "Okay, racism has been taught. It's been confirmed in Nelson. Now we can move back to their rural setting. And that's not the way that I had read it. Mm-hmm. And I will say Morrison is right. O'Connor writes for white readers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that, that O'Connor misses too, is she does not imagine a black reader. Correct. And, um, but it, but the stories at least work for white readers to unveil <laughs> some of their misconceptions about race. And mm-hmm. one of, and that story for me has always done that because at the end um, she, you know, O'Connor didn't have access to black Christ statues or, you know, black Jesus, the way Bonhoeffer saw mm-hmm. in Harlem. And this, this is her, I think it's her attempt to have a black Jesus. I really do. The fact uh, that he has the one eye versus the other eye is a pentocrator, one eye larger uh, than the other. Yeah. Right. It's her iconic, the grotesque kind of, the uh, yes. yeah. And, and the suffering for all, she even writes in a letter that it was the emblem of the, the Negro suffering for us all. I think she was trying for a black Jesus moment. 
Wow. Whether she, apparently she doesn't pull it off for black readers. Um, but as a white reader, I felt condemned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I felt damned before that vision mm-hmm. um, and, and guilty. And uh, I think that's what she was aiming at there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a really excellent point. And I would also point out that for my students, what they really like about that story and what I really like about that story, too, is how clear it is that the racism is being handed down from yes. grandfather to grandson and that this is the problem. Right. Yes. Yes. And so I, I had this conversation recently on an O'Connor panel. If, do you know Christine Flanagan? Mm-hmm. And she mentioned she won't teach that story because of the N word and it makes her students uncomfortable and she's not going to subject them to that, mm-hmm. which is a completely valid mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. My problem is the story actually shows students the artificiality mm-hmm. of that term. It does. And the fact that race itself is an artificial construct. Correct. Ha- it's one of the best stories for teaching that. And if you, I mean, that's one of the clearest examples story-wise and Morrison even points this out um, in which the N word is only used by the characters and never used. Never by the narrator narrator or certainly by O'Connor, right? Through the narrator, not. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think that story is crucial for teaching that and for passing that down. Um, The discomfort you're supposed to feel is not about that word. And so as far as you were asking a question, how do we go forward? I'm okay censoring that word because it has such horrible connotations mm-hmm. in the same way that I don't ask students to, you know, read the F word aloud when right. they're in class right. uh, at a Christian school. And so I wouldn't ask students to read that word aloud, but at the same time to recognize what's happening in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the way that I do it as well. And uh, it, it, it makes me sad that Flannery O'Connor did not take Caroline Gordon's advice to change yeah. the title. You know, I mean, I, I think it's... Or John Crow a, Ransom, who also, yeah. like, pushed for it, right? Yes, <laughs> right. Um, it would have been so much easier where we are today to teach yes. this marvelous story. Um, yes. But, but, you're, but I think you're right. I think it does point to the construct of, of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably why she wanted to keep it. Um, but we're just not right. in a place where we can deal with that very well. Well, and that's what, that's what we talked about with white, white readers. I mean, she's she's preaching to the choir. I may have said that in my article, but she's trying to preach to the choir. She really is trying to talk to people who talk like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And get them to stop talking like that. Yes. <laughs> Ironically. Um, she's not talking to people who are already uncomfortable with that word. Right. She's, That's right. You know, people are going to pick up that story because they, they love using that word. That word is part of their vocabulary. And then they're going to read the story and realize I shouldn't be using that word. Or I think that was part of the veiled intention, if I can just apply intention to (laughs) O'Connor. No, I like that because that makes a little bit feel like um, the Conjurer Tales, you know, by um, Charles Chestnut, right? Like I'm going to use this as a vehicle to trick my readers uh, into reading it. Uh, you know, it that's seems what she was doing. Yeah, this seems like an Uncle Julius story. That just seems like this, you know, whatever. No, oh, it's not an Uncle Julius story. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I that's, that's a great. A... That is a great parallel. Yes, I think that's what she was attempting. Okay, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and it it is sad that it it doesn't get taught as much as it would because of the title. Right, the title. Well, and I think Morrison, and this is why, if so, we're talking about all these ways you can keep teaching these words, mm-hmm. right? Balance them with other voices. Don't go to the writer's biography for inspiration right. <laughs> necessarily. Um, go ahead and censor things 
that need to be censored and talk about why the censoring is happening. Like, mm-hmm. don't put it behind a curtain necessarily. And I would think the other way is to to bring it into dialogue with voices who've interpreted it. So mm-hmm. um, having, you know, Alice Walker talks about in another essay that she wanted the whole story, right, to complete the whole, yeah. whole story. Uh, and O'Connor was part of that story, but then she's going to finish it. Walker is. Mm-hmm. And so if we read Morrison as a way of finishing our reading of that story, you can read Morrison on it and add that gloss, have Morrison the chance to begin. Mm-hmm. Two characters that O'Connor doesn't get voice to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because Achebe's piece on um, Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness is something that I've grappled with um, a lot. I don't know if you've read that, um, but I've taught it. And it always, I always end up thinking that really what the argument is there is that, yeah, you know, Conrad is supporting this kind of racist view, depending on how you read it, uh, and, and sort of enculturating it in the reader. But that does, but even the act of doing that is important for us to unpack. So I always, mm. if I, if I teach the heart of darkness, then I put Achebe's essay Mm, that's it, great. You know, um, and so I, I feel like just to add to what you're saying, we as O'Connor scholars and teachers just need to be forthright. This is who she was. These are the things she said and she wrote, you know, in her letters. Um, mm-hmm. But let's not just think that that's going to somehow topple, uh, you know, the usefulness and the importance of her fiction uh, for us to grapple with these right. issues. Yeah. Right. Well, good. Absolutely. Any any final um thoughts or things you want to leave our readers with before we conclude our talk? Well, I, I do think that this current moment, it's really easy to get excited about canceling people. Um, I have received emails from people who read my piece and they're very concerned that I'm, I'm excusing O'Connor and I'm Mm -hmm. allowing this kind of behavior and I'm, I'm defending her and it's morally wrong. We need to cancel her and move on. And I, I think that can be really troubling. I don't think just focusing on her problems uh, and seeing that as the only, only thing that's in front of us is helpful. And that kind of vision in which you constantly walk around the world judging characters or authors or books or people, um, that kind of disposition is what O'Connor is actually fighting against. Mm. And if we're going to read O'Connor for any purpose, you know, other than the pure enjoyment of the story, which there are a lot of things to be enjoyed in her work, it also should be to kind of have that humility before her story, to, to learn from it how to then see the world, uh, not with the judgmental lens, but with an openness and reception to discernment. That sounds like a great place to finish. Thank you so much, Jessica. I've really appreciated this conversation. And listeners, this has been Profiles, part of the ChristianHumanist.org. You can check us out and please subscribe.